They want us to feel how fashions in the films of the 1960s tell us so much about the times. Eugenia Polichelli and Louise Wallenberg burst out in the opening chapter of their study, Film, Fashion, and the 1960s, with Rodney Gregg's reflections on the movie that takes its title from this classic tune. It's been a hard day's night And I've been working like a dog It's been a hard day's night Greg takes us onto the train to jog our memories about the director's style and that gives us as viewers an experience of what it means to let ourselves go to physically break free from adult supervision and decorum so greg asked if we remember that scene in the film when the beatles when the beatles themselves are traveling by train and they encounter a pompous, conservatively-dressed, bowler-hatted gentleman who enters their train compartment and proceeds to order them around. He belligerently demands that they close the open window in their carriage and turn down their transistor radio, claiming authority over the group by being their elder and a veteran of World War II. But the Beatles mock his patriarchal pomposity through sarcasm and playful slapstick, John, for one, responds to his demand to close the window by claiming that the four Beatles have rights and then batting his eyes. While music producer George Martin fine-tuned the Beatles' sound and movie director Richard Lester surrounded them with the energy of new cinematic forms and styles, their tailor, Doogie Millings, was a creative master. He designed suits that were modern and chic, clearly embracing the historical turn in the 1960s to giving men's fashion as much inventive attention as women's. He drew his inspiration from the designs of modernist, groundbreaking designers such as Pierre Cardin, who led the way in revolutionizing menswear. With his unisex collection in 1958, Cardin began designing menswear, breaking a tradition in which couture houses did not design for men, in 1959, he offered a ready-to-wear line, again breaking new ground for a designer, which led to his being expelled from the Chambre Syndicale de l'Haute Couture, the governing body of the French fashion industry. By the time of their appearance on The Ed Sullivan Show in 1964, Millings and the Beatles had moved back to lapels and to collars. And according to J.J. Lee, who wrote on menswear, the suits that the Beatles wore for their American debut created strong diagonals with lapels, contrast collars, and narrow ties, which helped visually separate the shirt collars. The suits served the same purpose as the Sullivan stage set, Composed of giant arrows and radiating lines, they provided dynamism and sexual energy. The set drew the eye to the Beatles, and the Beatles' suits drew the eye to their faces. The Beatles had arrived with lapels. Millings and his son went on to make about 500 suits for the Beatles in the 1960s, and as a tribute to his importance, Millings had a cameo in A Hard Day's Night as a beleaguered tailor that from an essay by Rodney Gregg in Film, Fashion, and the 1960s. 
We're invited to have a full-fledged experience of the 1960s, to stir up oh so many memories, or to have an aha moment or two when we finally get what our parents or grandparents have been telling us about that time. The Allentown Art Museum is presenting a major exhibition titled Fashion as Experiment, the 60s, and it continues through September 24th. We had a chance to speak by phone with Claire McCree, associate curator at the museum, about the show. The Allentown Art Museum has several thousand works in the costume collection, which is a subset of our, we have about 8,000 textiles in the collection. It's a really rich and varied area of our holdings. And so the costume collection or fashion collection is mostly 20th century. A lot of it comes from the collection of Ellie Lobner, who's an Allentown-based collector, but we do have other donors who've contributed it as well. International examples of clothing as well? Absolutely, yeah. So we have, I would say, several thousand examples of Western clothing, and then we also have a number of garments from from global cultures that really complement the, the textile collection. And, you know, you can see the traditions that are carried across you know, two different media for for wearing and for use around the house or decoration or furnishing, all of these different facets. And we've talked to you before, for example, about the exhibitions coinciding with the commemoration of the ratification of women's suffrage and how you could go into the collection and pull out wonderful examples of what women were wearing and how the fashions changed, reflecting instead of the corseting, things were looser as women began to assert themselves more at that time. So this will be interesting to see how you came to the 60s at this time. What was the trigger for this particular show? So the 1960s in particular and the early 70s are an area where we have a lot of depth in the collection. It's something that we haven't explored in a fashion exhibition here before. And we also received a gift of clothing from Kirsten Jensen that also kind of helped to spur this, you know, an interest in showing this area of the collection and really the wide range of, of garments we have that kind of show the different personalities and moments of the decade. How would you begin, just logistically, how would you go about saying, oh, that's wonderful, we'll pair it with that, with a collection that's so large? We have, so in our collections database, most things are photographed, which is helpful for being able to go through and kind of make some preliminary determinations about what kinds of styles and aspects of youth fashion are expressed in in what we have here at the museum. And then after that, we started to pull things and look at them in person. A lot of times, you know, the photos are great for identification, but sometimes don't really do the garment justice. So there were some kind of exciting surprises and you discover things are so much more interesting or bright than they look in our photographs. And so from there, yeah, it was really about making a choice between what kind of best represented these different areas of youth fashion from the decade and making sure the show was balanced and worked well in the spaces between the sections in terms of numbers. So yeah, it was a really exciting project, and I learned a lot about the fun things in our collection. What themes did you settle on then to build the exhibition around? The exhibition as a whole focuses on youth fashion, 
and the idea of young people using clothing as a larger pattern of moving away from their parents' generation, their parents' values, the look of their parents, and searching for something new, something radically different. And so that starts out in the mid-1960s, and we have a couple sections that explore mod fashion, which was a, a British youth subculture initially that kind of becomes popular around the world. In part, if you think about early Beatles touring the U.S., that would be British mod style. And so in the U.S., you get these outfits that are, you start to get outfits that are very streamlined, very simple. They don't fit closely to the body. And so they're very different from the, you know, very precisely fitted kind of voluptuous ideal of the previous women in the previous decade. And so you have this more kind of girlish, easy style, you know, mod being short for modern. So it really expresses this fascination with the new and the contemporary. And kind of as a part of that, you also have this interest in novelty and experimental materials in fashion, things like paper and also prints that are kind of inspired by op art, optical illusions that play with vision and perception. And then from there, you know, we look at some of the really bright colors and patterns that become popular in the late 60s, floral and psychedelic prints. We have a section that focuses on menswear and challenging gender norms in that era, and a section about women's clothing and new silhouettes and shapes and how that related to changing ideas around modesty and propriety and sexuality. And so finally, the exhibition concludes with a gallery that looks at the youth counterculture of the late 60s and early 70s with kind of these more radical styles that are aiming to reject mainstream American culture that are trying to be anti-consumerist. And so so the exhibition as a whole puts forward the idea that these more kind of commercial, consumerist-oriented youth styles in the first group of sections beginning in the mid-60s really set the stage for this more radical phase by the end of the decade. Did designers have any role to play in this? Where did these clothes come from? We remember the importance of thrift stores in the 60s. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, it's really kind of a give and take. There's a big change in dynamic in this era, whereas before fashion has been kind of about rules and wearing the correct thing and fashion publications will tell you this is what you need to do to be up to date and to look you know, to look proper in style. The language shifts to really being about keeping up with trends, staying on top of the cycle. And it's something that's much more directed by consumers rather than the idea that you have to follow designers. And so, you know, certainly you have really influential designers, for instance, with Maude. You have like Andre Correge, who's doing these space age styles. But you also have a lot of small designers, boutiques, small stores that are disrupting the fashion system in this era. You know, boutiques are able to be very small and use their connections with clothing manufacturing in the major cities like London and New York to create clothing inventory that they can turn it over even weekly just to keep up this pace of new, new, new for for their audience. Yes, and then, of course, once you get to thinking about the counterculture, at least initially, that is all about 
rejecting this consumption that's kind of characterized the the mid-60s styles more, getting away from this. And so being able to be outside the fashion system by wearing vintage clothing, by thrifting clothing, by hand-making your own clothing. So all of these ways of circumventing, though, of course, designers are then inspired by this. They see where youth fashion is going, and so they start to release their own styles based on these youth fashions, which become, you know, mass-produced and commercial successes. So it's kind of this, this cycle in a way. And where does denim, where do blue jeans fit in all of this? That's a great question. Yeah, so jeans, of course, are really iconic for the activism and the youth rebellion of that era. And so, interestingly, I didn't know until I was working on this show, but jeans actually enter young people's wardrobes in kind of mainstream college campuses in the U.S. through the work of SNCC, the um, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee that was doing voter registration efforts in the South in the early 60s. And so these students, when they were Most of them were from northern colleges. They were volunteering in the South to register black voters, and they started wearing denim in order to, you know, better blend in and to feel more, you know, in line with the communities where they were working. And also African-American volunteers in SNCC also started to wear their hair in natural styles as well. And so... When they went back to campus in the fall, they took these styles with them, and they gradually became popular among college students and then among young people in general. And, of course, denim has this really strong association in that era still with manual labor, with farm work or heavy labor, and and with male attire as well. And so it has a lot of different connotations that are able to push the buttons of their parents' generation in the way that young people are looking for in that era. What about someone like Twiggy? We see Twiggy on television. We see Twiggy everywhere. How does that figure in the overall picture of the 60s? Twiggy is really associated closely with mod styles, and she's presented as this ideal of this new silhouette and style that, you know, now it, it's not fitted to the body. It, it just kind of skims over and, you know, this kind of waifish, girlish look very thin, more adolescent rather than this mature, sophisticated woman. And so all of this kind of is a big shift in terms of fashionable ideals, which have still stayed more with this kind of mature, womanly figure. And, you know, it's part of this whole fascination with British culture in the U.S. in the 60s and these youth trends that really hop over the ocean. And so... From about 1964 to 1967 is kind of the peak moment of that adoration of of British style in the U.S. There was no internet. There were no online chat groups and influencers in that way. And so the images were in magazines. They were on television. How did that all spread? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So, yeah, of course, you know, in that era, in the larger cities, there's some kind of organic you know, almost word of mouth only, you know, seeing people on the street in terms of in London, Carnaby Street becomes really famous in New York City, these kind of street styles being a way that fashion circulates. And then, of course, you have print media, you have 
magazines aimed at teenagers that are sharing these styles. You have television, the the Beatles U.S. tour being televised to massive audiences. And yeah, so it's, you know, different media, but these ideas and these aesthetics are still really circulating. You mentioned that you've had wonderful gifts from collectors. Where do the collectors secure the clothing that they ultimately will give to you? How does that exchange and preservation of clothes from a time period that's so recent take place? It's interesting. You know, we have collectors who have different approaches. One of them was just really fascinated with fashion history and worked to amass this huge collection, Ellie Lobner. And she mostly, she purchased things at thrift stores and estate sales. And she was also acquiring these in the 1980s, which was a time when no one really wanted this fashion from this era. It was passe and not old enough to be exciting yet. Yeah, and then, you know, there are other collectors who are really focused on designers and collecting important works from a designer career or, you know, that like to wear these styles themselves and then pass them on when, you know, when it's not what they're looking for anymore. Also, what about the accessorizing or the accessories? You know, those round glasses that John Lennon would wear or the vinyl boots or things like that. Does your collection include that? Yeah, that's one thing that's really wonderful about Ellie Lobner's collection in particular is that she focused on accessories and jewelry and really had an interest in that. And it's so nice to be able to include that to kind of give a full picture of that era. You know, this is an era when accessories become less about kind of being properly dressed and more about making a statement or kind of turning this traditional idea of how you might use an accessory on its head, that they're kind of wild and outlandish. Yes, and of course, we do have a number of pairs of boots in the show as well. And it's great to have those in dialogue with the clothing, the garments, because, you know, as hemlines grow shorter, there becomes more interest in stockings and boots and styles for women that are really focusing on the legs. And so it's great to be able to show that whole picture. Is there a military influence? Is that something that's reflected in this show? Yeah, so we do actually have a pair of U.S. Navy bell bottoms that are, you know, U.S. Navy uniform pants that are in the show, paired with a flamboyant men's shirt. And these pants actually, the lender to the show, she bought them because she was in school and it was really cold in the winter. Um, she was in the Midwest and she needed some nice warm wool pants to to go to class in. And so. Yeah, so it's just really interesting to see the stories behind these garments and, you know, how they came into people's wardrobes. People probably of a certain age will be reliving history, their personal history and our U.S. history going through the show. How much longer do we have to see the show, Claire? Yeah, it's on view through September 24th. And one thing that's been really great is just seeing the appeal across age groups. You have you know, of course, people who experience the time and, you know, remember a lot of these styles. You have people who are younger, but they have family members who lived through that era. And then, of course, there's a lot of relevance in terms of the issues discussed in the 60s and today. And so you really see kind of a new generation being interested in this era of kind of reimagining and experimentation with what fashion could be and how it could communicate ideals about making the world a, a better place. Is there any way in which the clothing exhibition is in conversation with 
some of the art that the museum has. You mentioned op art. Are there pieces in the museum's collection that are contemporary? Yeah, definitely. Downstairs in our American galleries, we have works by Richard Anaskevich, which are very op art influenced. We have work on view by Karita Kent, who was really interested in kind of a pop art way of taking advertising and everyday texts and slogans and reinterpreting them according to, you know, spiritual messaging as well as just current social issues like poverty and racism. So yeah, there's definitely, if you look through our our galleries, you can definitely find moments where there are parallels between them. When all is said and done, Claire, what would you leave us with when it comes to, say, then and now thoughts concerning this exhibition? You know, one thing that was interesting for me was having known that this was an era of challenging authority, but not quite absorbing to what extent that just hadn't been the norm before, that there had been much more of a you know, as the youth of the 60s would criticize, they would say that it was a more conformist culture and it was limiting. And so I think really seeing that contrast was eye-opening. And so in that era, this really is the first time that you have this idea that you should have an individual style, that your fashion should be expressing something personal. Before that, it was much more about being properly dressed, being in style, but less about individuality. And so that's something that has really continued as an ideal in fashion that, you know, your fashion is supposed to say something about you. And this idea of being independent from maybe what designers are saying should be worn, originality being important, and clothing as self-expression, that's something that's really changed. And, And I think, you know, there's this moment that fashion historians love to talk about where you have the miniskirt. In the mid-60s, you have the maxi skirt coming in towards the end of the decade, and then designers try to introduce the midi skirt, which is kind of calf length between the two, and it's just a huge flop. People aren't buying it, and it's really this moment that people remark on where designers kind of didn't have that same control over dictating styles in the way that they used to be able to. And so the midi does eventually catch on, but it's kind of slow to take, and so You know, since the 60s and early 70s, there's just much more dialogue between designers and youth style and street style. And yeah, it's it's a very different dynamic now. You all at the museum are so good about offering programs to support your exhibitions. What kinds of things do you have still to come before the show is over? So this weekend, we have a workshop focusing on visible mending which is a contemporary trend of mending clothing in a way that draws attention to itself, that's colorful, often involving embroidery or fun patches, bringing together a lot of different traditions and, you know, has to do with sustainability. And so in this way, there are a lot of parallels actually to the 60s and early 70s when young people would alter their genes, would kind of refashion and DIY things out of a sense of rebellion and activism, but also as a way to kind of show their separation from mainstream culture. So I'm really excited. There's just so many parallels between this moment of rebellion and interest in ecology and then today thinking about 
current concerns with sustainability and fashions. You all do many things at the Allentown Art Museum. What else is on offer? We just opened an exhibition of Pennsylvania Impressionist paintings that's really lovely and is going to be on view for the next year. So stop by and enjoy that. And of course, just a reminder that the museum is always free. We're open Thursday through Sunday and no admission charge. We like to do something now which we've never ever done before and it's a track of our new LP. And this song's called Yesterday. And so, for Paul McCartney of Liverpool, Opportunity Knocks. Yesterday, all my troubles seem so far away. Ah, yesterday, all the way back to the 1960s. We spoke by phone with Claire McCree, associate curator at the Allentown Art Museum, about the current exhibition, a major show, Fashion as Experiment, the 60s, and the show will continue through September 24th. As we heard, there are a number of programs that are connected with the exhibition, and this weekend you can have a guided tour of Fashion as Experiment at 2 o'clock, and that's on Saturday and on Sunday. And then on Saturday and Sunday, there will be that upcycling workshop, embroidery and visible mending. And that's from noon to three. And that's Saturday and also Sunday, so August 12th and 13th. So it's a very rich weekend if you are able to get to the Allentown Art Museum, which is on North 5th Street. Also to come in September, September 9th and 10th, there'll be another upcycling workshop and then the closing weekend will be the 23rd and the 24th. Much more. And all you need to do is check the website. It's allentownartmuseum.org, allentownartmuseum.org. And as Claire told us, admission to the Allentown Art Museum is always free free for everyone, and they are very, very proud to keep the doors open. Fashion as Experiment, the 60s, at the Allentown Art Museum through September 24th. For more information, on the web, Allentown Art Museum, Thank you, Ringo. That was wonderful.